welcome everyone to another edition of Governed by God, a biblical look at law, civics, and government. My name is Eric Lupul. Thank you for joining me on today's episode. So in keeping with uh, the current series that I'm doing on looking at democracy in America by Alexis de Tocqueville, uh, I want to do one more episode on that book. There's many topics we could discuss, but I do want to discuss what Tocqueville had to say about women in America compared to Europe uh, in the 1830s. Now, before I do that, I want to address a related passage of the day. Now, that passage of the day is Proverbs 31. And many of you might be already familiar with that passage. It is the uh, woman of honor passage. But a lot of folks kind of forget the first part of that passage, that chapter. And so I want to read uh, the whole thing. Uh, I'm going to comment on it along the way, uh, spend five, six minutes or so on it, maybe more, we'll see. But I ask that you consider uh, perhaps this earlier section that uh, a lot of folks don't think about. So Proverbs 31, verse 1. The words of King Lemuel, an oracle that his mother taught him. What are you doing, my son? What are you doing, son of my womb? What are you doing, son of my vows? Do not give your strength to women, your ways to those who destroy kings. It is not for kings, O Lemuel. It is not for kings to drink wine, or for rulers to take strong drink, lest they drink and forget what has been decreed, and pervert the rights of all the afflicted. Give strong drink to the one who is perishing, and wine to those in bitter distress. Let them drink and forget their poverty, and remember their misery no more. Open your mouth for the mute, for the rights of all who are destitute. Open your mouth, judge righteously, defend the rights of the poor and needy. I'm going to pause there because the next section is the Proverbs 31 woman section that is so often uh, quoted. But a lot of folks forget that all of this, this entire chapter, are the words of King Lemuel. And what's even more interesting is that they were taught to him by his mother. So these oracles were taught by a mother to her son. Now her son eventually became a king, but uh, it's interesting that she is giving guidance and wisdom to him concerning women, okay? And I think this is very important because, you know, mothers have a very significant role to play, not only for their daughters, but also for their sons, all right? And one of the things that she's doing is the first half of this chapter, chapter 31, she is addressing how he should behave, essentially, because he's going to be king, okay? Or he already is king, but it's very likely that his mother taught him these things before he took the throne. Uh, and then verses 10 and on, the Proverbs 31 woman passage uh, is about what a woman should do and should be like. And that's Lemuel's mother telling him that. His mother is describing to him, this is what you do, this is what you look for in an honorable woman. So what is the thing that she tells him to do? Well, first of all, she tells him, do not give your strength to women, your ways to those who destroy kings. Okay, so 
This is a strong argument against engaging in fornication and adultery and just giving over to your sensual desires as a man. And so she wants him, she's telling him, have self-control, okay? Um, If you don't, it will destroy you. Um, And we see this happen in Scripture, not just with, for instance, King David, but, but King Solomon, who had so many hundreds of wives and concubines, and they led him astray to follow after other gods. He wanted to please them. Um, he married them, and they're from other, other lands, other nations. But they didn't believe in the Lord. And so Solomon went on to please them. And by doing so, he himself fell into idolatry. But then uh, Lemuel's mother, and we don't know her name, uh, but, but his mother uh, reminds him not to give himself over to drinking. Okay, not, not too much drink there. It's not, it's not the job of kings to do this. It's not their place to party or to get drunk or anything like that. Their job is to not forget what has been decreed. So their job is to remember the laws, remember the rules, follow the, follow the laws, and assert the rights of those who are being hurt, being afflicted, all right? Open your mouth for the mute. So defend the rights of those in need, of those who are suffering, um, and make sure you judge righteously. And you can't do that, on the one hand, if you're giving your strength to women, um, just lacking self-control. And you can't do that, on the other hand, if you're giving yourself to drinking, alcohol, drugs, lack of self This is all about self-control, essentially, uh, for, for those in authority. And then King Lemuel's mother goes into the description of the woman who fears the Lord, starting in verse 10. An excellent wife who can find she is far more precious than jewels. The heart of her husband trusts in her, and he will have no lack of gain. She does him good and not harm all the days of her life. She seeks wool and flax and works with willing hands. She is like the ships of the merchant. She brings her food from afar. She rises while it is yet night and provides food for her household and portions for her maidens. So I'll just briefly stop there at verse 15. So she is on the same side as her husband. She does good to him. She's not opposed to him. She does support him. Okay, they're on the same mission together. Um, Her husband trusts in her completely. Okay, now she's a hardworking person, very diligent. And the work is not, there is some work she does outside the home. We'll get to that in a second. She owns property. Um, She does work. But the thing is, it's still home-centered. The goal is to build up the household, strengthen it and to provide for it. She's providing for servants. She has servants in her household, okay? She's making sure that everything is ordered and is is functioning well in the household, okay? Now going on to verse 16, she considers a field and buys it. With the fruit of her hands, she plants a vineyard. She dresses herself with strength and makes her arms strong. She perceives that her merchandise is profitable, Her lamp does not go out at night. 
she puts her hands to the distaff and her hands hold the spindle. Okay, so she is doing work. Her home is productive. Okay, it is producing. She's got a vineyard. She's growing things. She's making merchandise. So she is engaged in business, 100% engaged in business. But it is, in a sense, a self-business or family business with her husband or even with herself. Um, and she's not working in the sense outside the home, like for some large corporation working for another man's household. Okay, so it's not that she's stuck in the kitchen pregnant and barefoot. That's not, that's a caricature of what it means to be a, a woman who builds up her household. Okay, um, this is a, a quite a glorious thing. This is a very busy, hardworking thing. Much more hardworking, by the way, than many folks that go out to work for corporations. Anyways, uh, continue verse 20. She opens her hand to the poor and reaches out her hands to the needy. She's not afraid of snow for her household, for all her household are clothed in scarlet. She makes bed coverings for herself. Her clothing is fine linen and purple. So that's a lot of wealth right there. Her husband is known in the gates when he sits among the elders of the land. She makes linen garments and sells them. She delivers sashes to the merchant. Strength and dignity are her clothing, and she laughs at the time to come. She opens her mouth with wisdom, and the teaching of kindness is on her tongue. She looks well to the ways of her household, and she does not eat the bread of idleness. Her children rise up and call her blessed, her husband also, and he praises her. Many women have done excellently, but you surpass them all. Charm is deceitful and beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Give her of the fruit of her hands and let her works praise her in the gates. So again, strength, dignity, wisdom, kindness. Um, her children call her blessed. Her husband praises her. Okay, so her husband's known in the gates. So they're working together in this. This is a household affair. The whole household uh, rises or falls um, together, okay, it's a team effort, um, and the goal is the glory of God, and in this case, this woman is building up her household, she's focusing on that, because that is going to have a lasting impact in the society and in the world, and, and that leads me right into, so that's our passage of the day, but that leads me right into what I want to talk about, regarding uh, what Tocqueville said about the uh, women in America. This is just a fascinating chapter of his book. It's not very long, by the way, so I would encourage all of you to read it. Um, you can look it up. It's, it's available free online. His entire book is available for free. Uh, and you just have to find it. But this is in Volume 2, Part 3, Chapter 12. I told you, he's, he's got a lot of chapters, a lot of parts in this book. This is, uh, on, on my version, it's page 1065. I told you, Tocqueville was a very prolific writer. I mean, this book is 1,500 pages long, and he wrote this by hand in the 1830s. It's just absolutely mind-boggling. But this guy was brilliant. Like I said, for those of you who aren't familiar with him, he came. he's a Frenchman. He came to the United States in the 1830s. He, he toured all the states, north and south, and he just observed and investigated and did research on American culture, government, lifestyle, religion, everything. Now, he, 
he lived through the French Revolution, and he saw um, what egalitarianism was doing to Europe and specifically to France. And he contrasts with um, America. So here's what he says in chapter 12 about it. He says, There are men in Europe who, confusing the different attributes of the sexes, claim to make the man and the woman beings not only equal but similar. They give to the one as to the other the same functions, impose the same duties on them, and grant them the same rights. They mix them in everything, work, pleasures, public affairs. It can easily be imagined that by trying hard in this way to make one sex equal to the other, both are degraded, and that from this crude mixture of the works of nature, only weak men and dishonest women can ever emerge. Okay, so right out the gate there, right out the gate, Tocqueville is really hitting hard this issue in Europe, this attempt of perfect equality, perfect egalitarianism. Okay, and he says that it's just resulting in the degrading of both, and what you get from it is weak men and dishonest women. Okay, so now he does go on to say from this point, quote, this is not how the Americans understood the type of democratic equality, end quote. All right, so he just goes right out and says, yep, this is a, there's a difference here between um, the Americans and the Europeans understanding of equality. He says that the Americans applied to the two sexes the great principle of political economy that dominates industry today. They carefully divided the functions of the man and the woman in order that the great work of society was better accomplished. He says this, he says, America is the country in the world where the most constant care has been taken to draw clearly separated lines of action for the two sexes, and where the desire has been that both marched with an equal step but always along different paths, all right? So equal step, so there's that sense of value, purpose, but different paths that they're each doing, different things for a singular purpose. And he says this, he says, nor have the Americans ever imagined that the consequence of democratic principles was to overturn marital authority and to introduce confusion of authority into the family. They thought that every association, to be effective, must have a head, and that the natural head of the conjugal association was the man. So they do not deny to the latter the right to direct his companion, and they believe that in the small society of husband and wife, as in the great political society, the goal of democracy is to regulate necessary powers and to make them legitimate, not to destroy all power. Okay, so what is he saying here? That how Americans understood democracy is not this great uh, leveling feature that destroys all power and makes everyone individualistic, autonomous. That, that's kind of what's going on in Europe here. But he's saying, no, democracy is meant to regulate power. There is power. There is authority. It is necessary, and it has to be regulated. And to make it legitimate, because there's illegitimate power, okay, but there's also legitimate power. And then it's not to destroy it, though but to contain and control it, to focus it. And that's how the Americans have understood democracy. So jumping down, I'm not going to read the entire chapter, but I've highlighted several key portions here. Here's what he says next. 
I seem to see on the contrary that they, the women, took a kind of glory in the voluntary surrender of their will, and that they located their grandeur in bending to the yoke themselves and not in escaping it. He's talking about marriage here, the, the, the yoke of marriage or voluntary surrendering their will to their husband. That, at least, was the sentiment expressed by the most virtuous. The others kept silent. And you do not hear in the, in the United States the adulterous wife noisily claim the rights of woman while trampling her most holy duties underfoot. It has often been remarked that in Europe a certain disdain is found even amid the flatteries that men lavish on women. Although the European man often makes himself the slave of the woman, you see that he never sincerely believes her his equal. Okay, so here we're talking about, he asks some questions, he's doing an investigation, um, I mean, it seems to be that no one is really, you know, noisily proclaiming their rights and describing themselves as oppressed. Um, now, some people might say, well, you see, there's some silence there. They're just suffering silently. Yeah, but Tocqueville seems to indicate that that's not because they're afraid of their husband and they're not, they're afraid to say anything and have no one to defend them. It's because of her desire to honor the holy duties that she's been given from God. Okay. He kind of contrasts it with, with Europe. He says, well, you know, even in Europe, there are men that just, uh, you know, flatter women and make himself the slave of the woman, but he doesn't really actually believe that he is her equal. So it's all sneaky and under the surface in Europe. It's actually very dishonest. Uh, so in Europe, the man pretends to treat the woman as his absolute equal, doesn't really believe it. But in America, their equality is one of value, and they each respect that. But then he brings up an interesting topic regarding conduct, specifically sexual conduct. Now, here's what he says. He says, among them, the Americans, purity of morals and marriage and respect for conjugal faith are imposed equally on the man and on the woman, and the seducer is as dishonored as his victim. Okay, so there's no double standard here, at least in the United States is that, yeah, it's not, it's not that men can sleep with whoever they want to and then women have to be virgins. No, that's not at all the case. Both are held to account for virtue and purity of morals and marriage. All right, now he's got, I, I'm going to read this long passage here because I think it's so, it's so powerful and so important. Uh, here's what he says. It is true that American men rarely show to women these attentive considerations with which we enjoy surrounding them in Europe, but they always show by their conduct, that they assume them to be virtuous and delicate, and they have such a great respect for their moral liberty that in their presence each man carefully watches his words for fear that the woman might be forced to hear language that wounds them. In America, a young girl undertakes a long journey alone and without fear. The legislators of the United States, who have made nearly all the provisions of the penal code milder, punish rape with death. And there is no crime that public opinion pursues with a more inexorable ardor. This can be explained, since the Americans imagine nothing more precious than the honor of the woman, or nothing so respectable as her independence. They consider that there is no punishment too severe for those who take them away from her against her will. In France, where the same crime is struck by much milder penalties, it is often difficult to find a jury that convicts. Okay, now that is interesting, that he is contrasting not just the cultural behavior of how people treat each other and how men treat women, but also the law. 
And at this time in the United States, in the 1830s, rape was punishable by death. And so you have this cultural uh, desire to honor and respect women, and then you have this significant punishment against those who would dare to violate that. It's to that degree that he says that a young girl can undertake a long journey alone and not be afraid. But in Europe, they don't punish rape, not very, not as significantly. And the, the same kind of culture is not there in Europe, even though they claim to be more equal, you know, more egalitarian. So it's all a claim of equality, but certainly not um, any kind of uh, good treatment of women. So he goes on to say here, he says, Thus, the Americans do not believe that man and woman have the duty or the right to do the same things, but they show the same respect for the role of each one of them, and they consider them as beings whose value is equal, although their destinies differ. Okay, so that's powerful. That right there is your concept of equal in value, but distinct and different in their function and in their goals and in what they are designed to do by God. Okay, so that is uh, quite important. I want to end with, with his final paragraph of this chapter. I didn't skip too much. I mean, I only skipped a few sections, but I told you it's only like five pages long. But here is how he ends this section on the concept of equality in America. He says, As for me, I will not hesitate to say it. Although in the United States the woman hardly leaves the domestic circle, and although she is in certain respects very dependent, nowhere has her position seemed higher to me. And if, now that I am approaching the end of this book, in which I have shown so many considerable things done by the Americans, you asked me, to what I think the singular prosperity and growing strength of this people must be principally attributed, I would answer that it is to the superiority of their women. Now that is an ending. That is a powerful ending. I mean, he doesn't even hold back. He says, look, it's true. The women in America do not hardly leave their domestic circle, but she's not trapped there. She enjoys it. She thrives in it. Um, and her position is, is nowhere else higher in the world than in America. Uh, and he goes on to say that the strength and the success and the prosperity of America is principally attributed, he says, principally attributed to the superiority of their women. And he's not talking about superiority as in like they're just by definition better, by default or by like genetics better than the European women. It's about their virtue and their morals and their focus, their desires and their goals, and this understanding that they can have equal value, absolutely. But they're doing what God has designed them to do. They're they're glorifying God and, and it's a it's leading to a harmony and a prosperity of the home, which is the foundational building block of society. So I I think right there we see nothing is perfect. I'm not trying to say that everything was perfect in the 1830s United States. And neither is Tocqueville. He doesn't say everything is perfect, okay? But he is comparing a real society, 1830s America, with another real society, 1830s Europe slash France. And there's some significant differences, and there's reasons why. One claims to honor egalitarianism and equality. 
but doesn't actually believe it or live it out. The other openly recognizes equal in value, distinct in purposes and function. Everyone understands, everyone believes it, agrees with it, and enjoys it and and lives it out. And so there's honesty and integrity and respect in the United States. Not so uh, in France, the place that uh, claims to uh, to provide true equality. So anyways, I just found that section, that chapter, so fundamentally powerful uh, that I wanted to talk about that today. And it tied very well with Proverbs 31. So I do hope that that you would pick up Tocqueville's book at some point and look through it, read through it. I think we're going to take a break from Tocqueville and move on to a different historical document. I'm trying to keep a focus on historical, although I'm sure something modern might come up that needs to be talked about. But anyways, thank you for tuning in on today's episode. If you have any questions or other topics you want me to address, please email me at thegbgpodcast at gmail.com or go to Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, look for Governed by God. You can contact me there, and I would love to um, answer your questions and and address any topics that uh, you think are worthwhile. So uh, with that, uh, until next time, take care, and God bless.